Yep. Morning. Morning. Are you all alive? Jolly good. I don't know who engineers these things, uh, whether it's God or Ken or Martin, um, but it's a little poignant, I think, the the topic for today, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, But um, anyway, if you, we're going to have a look at Matthew 5, we're going to look at this particular topic, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Um, So if you want to look, turn with me to Matthew 5. I'm going to read the Beatitudes because I think the context is uh, not just interesting but also important. So Matthew 5, 1 to 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Sorry, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And I ask this morning for your strength, and your clarity, and Lord, that that word would bear fruit in our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the most important part of the context of this is, um, I said this, I think, a, a little while ago when I was preaching here, that um, sometimes we, we take our interpretation of scripture from popular media, and if you've watched the, the series, The Chosen, you will have got um, a, a view of this particular sermon, which is not, I'm afraid, very accurate. It wasn't a public exercise. It was actually Jesus talking and teaching to his disciples. So it said there were lots of crowds, and he says he called his disciples to him and went up on a hillside. And the inference is, is that he went away from the crowds, not to them, and that he's drawing those who are his own disciples aside to teach them. And so this, the Beatitudes is not really a mass sermon exercise. It did turn into that, I guess, because thousands of people were listening along the sides, but that wasn't Jesus' main agenda, okay? And so uh, he's teaching his disciples, and the passage says that he calls them to himself, and then he teaches them, okay? So I have a question for you. It's just an open question, just to get your brains working, because I know that needs to happen sometimes on a Sunday morning. Is just among yourselves, just, you know, turn to someone next to you. Uh, if you, you know, find a friend next to you. If you can't find a friend, find an enemy. Um, because it's about peacemaking today. Um, what is a disciple? What do you think a disciple is? Jesus is teaching his disciples. What do you think a disciple really is? Talk.
Okay, just a few more seconds and then we'll pull it back together. Okay. Anyone going to volunteer an answer for me? What's a disciple? A follower of Jesus. That's a nice, simple answer. Okay. How do you follow Jesus? Trusting him, giving him your heart. Okay. Anyone got anything to add? Modeling your life on him. What, the whole of it or just Sundays? A whole of it. Okay, just check in. Knowing Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Wanting intimacy with him. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Discipline means to actually become like, become constrained in a way to become like the object that, of you, that you're looking up to. Yeah. Anyone else? Anyone over this side? It's a quiet side of the room here. You were thinking. Okay. Okay. It's interesting that actually in a Jewish setting, mostly a disciple would be someone who chooses to follow. But actually Jesus is unusual in that he chooses his own disciples. So he's already sorted that out. Now, in this crowd, and this is more than the 12, okay? Uh, in this crowd, Jesus is teaching a lifestyle. And discipleship is a choice of lifestyle. So this is... The layout, when Jesus gives the Beatitudes, he's, he's laying out a lifestyle that he's calling his followers to. It is a lifestyle. It's not a Sunday thing. It's not a Sabbath thing. It's not a Saturday thing. It is a whole life thing. And the, the inference of a disciple was that it was the rest of their life. It wasn't just the next week or a couple of years. Okay, It was the rest of their life. And it's a lifestyle. Jesus here is talking about a lifestyle of practical holiness. He sets standards discipleship as beyond following the simply the Ten Commandments. Now, I, I know many Christians who breathe a sigh of relief when they think, oh, I don't have to, you know, I'm not constrained by the law. But actually, the righteousness that Jesus sets out in the discipleship, in, in the Beatitudes, is beyond the law. He goes beyond what the Jews were expected to do. So at the end of it, he says, if your righteousness, talking to his own disciples, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that can be a bit hard for us to swallow unless we realize how we get that righteousness. Because Jesus sets the parameters for a holy lifestyle, and he uses this phrase, and you, you probably heard this a few times over the last month, uh, but when Jesus talks about blessed, he's talking about happy. Okay, now most people, when they think of happy, they think, if I get everything I want, then I'll be happy. But Jesus says, no, when you are holy, then you will be happy. 
And there is a direct link between the teachings of Jesus that says, when your lifestyle is holy, and when your heart is holy, then you will know what happiness is. So it's an internal thing, not an external thing. Okay, It is a choice of lifestyle, but it can only... And we need to get this, okay, because very often you look, if you take the Beatitudes and you think, okay, Jesus has raised the bar, I need to live up to those, you're missing the point. The holiness that Jesus is calling us to is not achievable on our own. It's not achievable on our own strength. It's not a legal holiness. It's not a legalistic righteousness. It's a righteousness that we achieve by the power of his spirit moving in our lives. That is why the indwelling spirit of God is so important for a Christian. You can't live the life God calls you to without it. You'll never be a peacemaker until the Prince of Peace lives in your heart. You see it all around the world. Many people are trying to achieve peace and their own families at home are in turmoil. There are many envoys who go around and try and broker peace between nations and the next thing you hear in the news is the divorce and their broken family and their children are separated from them. There's no peace at home. They're trying to broker a political peace. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying you will become a peacemaker because the Prince of Peace himself lives in your heart. And that is what changes us. Anyway, so... I want to talk about just a few things this morning. Firstly, what is the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about? How does Jesus give that peace to us? And how does this revelation make us peacemakers? And then we'll talk a little bit. How, how can I be a peacemaker? And, uh, and what are the things to, to avoid? So firstly, what kind of peace? Now, Jesus uses a Greek word, and I'm not going to quote it, okay? We don't know whether it's a translation of the Hebrew, because Jesus would have spoken in Aramaic, and probably the words that it's written down are not the words that he actually spoke, because it was written down in Greek, okay? And Jesus, as far as we know, didn't teach in Greek. He probably spoke in Aramaic or Hebrew. So, but the word in Greek means simply, and this is why it's poignant for today, a cessation of war. Do we need that? Does the world need that right now? It means for wars to cease, in the words of Isaiah, to the ends of the earth. This is the message, this is the ministry of Messiah, that wars will cease to the ends of the earth. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he says, blessed, happy are those who make war to cease. Now, it's not talking about where, you know, the kind of peace that you look for after a long day at work, where all of the kids run away and just leave you alone. um, And, you know, and your your dinner gets brought to you on a plate or something like that. And, And, you know, your favorite program is on the TV. That's nothing to do with this kind of peace. It is the cessation of hostility. But it's more than that. It's not just an uneasy truce. This is the cessation of hostility to the point where the land can go, oh, thank God for that. Where the very environment, the very nature of everything around can say, oh, yes. And it's purged right to its roots, and fruit begins to grow again. 
And that's the inference of this word, a cessation of war and a release again to fruitfulness. Do we need that? Do we need it in our own hearts sometimes? You see, this is what Jesus talks about when he talks about peace. Very often, you know, if you clear, I've got a patch of land out the back of the church, okay, and, um, and we're trying to work on it at the moment. And um, I, I sent my friend Abelfaz out there the other day with a strimmer. And he's got rid of all the brambles. And it's great. But it's going to grow again. Tony knows this very well because he's a very big garden to deal with. Actually, just clearing stuff up doesn't solve the problem. You have to deal with the roots. So the, the idea of this is it's not just a political piece. So years ago, and um, you know, Andy and Sue have been out in Lebanon an awful lot, but my first visit to Lebanon, I drove into Beirut, and I was, I was amazed. There were shell holes everywhere. It was after the war, okay, and the country was recovering slowly, and there was peace, okay? Um, otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been allowed to go there. But I went there, and you know there was bullet holes in all of the buildings. Went down into to Beirut Central, and I never forget this picture of um, of a, a man living in a block of flats. Okay, and I could see him because there was no wall to the block of flats, and he was on the second floor, and I could see him watching telly. There was no wall. I mean. Only in the Middle East, okay, because there's not that much rain. Um, but but the, 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 it was a four-story block of flats, and the top floor had gone down and collapsed, and the next one had gone down under that, and it was all resting on his ceiling. And he was there watching telly, and there was no, floor, no, wall, no wall on the downstairs flat as well. And ne the next time I went back, most of that had gone. And then... Uh, over the years, as I kept going back to Beirut, I kept seeing prosperity, or what looked like prosperity. But the truth is, the peace in Lebanon is uneasy, because it's political. And you can do that. You can have this kind of peace that we broker, which is about, yeah, well, okay, we'll get over it, and we'll just agree to disagree. Do you ever do that with anyone? Let's just agree to disagree. And then you think you've agreed to disagree, and then they do it again. <laughs> and everything comes up, and you've dealt with nothing. Because all of the pain of the past comes back and bites you all over again. This is not the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. It's not political. It's not covering up. It's not sweeping under the carpet. Sometimes... You know, I, I feel this in my own life, and I know that many of you will as well, that there are people who have hurt you, and you forgive them. And then they do it again, or they look like they're going to do it again. And everything within you reacts. And it's like the ground has been cleared, but the roots remain. Am I making any sense this morning? See, when Jesus talks about this word, and I, I'm not going to pronounce it because I'll get it wrong, but it's the word we get the word Irene from. If you're called Irene, that's what your name means, okay? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the Irene makers. You've made an Irene, well done. What I want to talk about is how, when Jesus, remember we're talking about disciples, so when he says blessed are the peacemakers, he's making people like himself. 
So he is the first peacemaker. And this is how Jesus does discipleship. Okay? He doesn't tell people what to do. He demonstrates what to do. And then he does it with them. So I remember years ago, a friend of mine was describing standing on the bank of the Thames and he saw, um, saw a, a father trying to teach his boys to row. And they were in a boat and, they, and he was, uh, you know, it's two of them, one on hand on each oar. It's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the only thing worse than two children rowing are two people from the same church. Just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> and as they were rowing, they were going round and round in circles. And the father was doing a mad dance on the shore, yelling at them, no, left oar, no, right oar. That's religion, okay? And then he said, I saw this image of how a man, he watched a man teaching his boys to row, and he said, this is how you do it. He got in the boat, and he laid his hand on the oars, and then he showed them. He said, this is how you do it. And then he got out of the boat, and this is the bit I'm not so good at, because I'm great at give it here, I'll do it myself, okay? He got out of the boat, and he got his boys to sit in the boat, one hand on one oar, on one hand on the other. Actually, one was in the back because he didn't want to time this, book, this man. And he sat on the boat with his legs astride his son. He put his hand on the son's hands. And they rowed. And the father rowed. And the son felt his father rowing. And gradually he said, I watched him take his hands off the oar. And the boy was doing it himself. No shouting, no yelling. No domineering, no commanding, just this, son, is how you do it. This is how Jesus trains his disciples. So when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he says, happy are those who bring Irene, who bring lasting peace that enables the land to go, ah, and fruitfulness to emerge. <coughs> See, this is what Jesus does in our relationship. This is the mark of discipleship in a person's life. I had a lovely lunch the other week. The lunch was amazing, but it was just a, a lass um, who's just come to Christ at, uh, at our church. She's um, uh, an Afghanistani, uh, grew up as a Muslim, and uh, I had a lovely lunch with her and her husband. And uh, her husband is, is um, Iraqi, and uh, he's not a believer. And uh, we were talking, and he said, she loves me. He said, I can't get over that. He said, she loves me much better now, much more. You see, he'd seen the fruit in her life. This is how Jesus does discipleship. He teaches, models, and then he watches us change. So how does Jesus make peace? Well, Jesus makes peace by dealing with the problem. Jesus makes peace by paying the whole price himself. You see, this is, when, when God brokers peace with us, he doesn't say, okay, you give and I'll give a bit. You know, you do this, if you come, if, you know, this is how often we do peace. We say, if you come to me, I'll come to you, I'll meet you halfway. No. God didn't do that. He came the whole way himself. He came the whole distance between us and him. He covered the ground in one leap. And wrapped his arms around us. 
while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Now, I know that you like to think that you were warming up to God when he found you. But I, I, have, I have a theological problem with that. I don't think that's what happens. I think the whole process of you warming up was God himself anyway. Is we warm up because God is already working on us. And when you come to him, it's not the beginning of the journey for him. He's been working on you for years. God covers the whole distance in one ground, one, one loop. Jesus says this, or Colossians says this, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is everyone that judges you and everything that says you're a sinner and they're right, you are and I am or we were at least. He disarms them, makes a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Jesus made the whole jump, and this is the kind of peacemaking that he calls us into. He doesn't call us into this political peacemaking where you cover half the distance and say, you pay half and I'll pay half, we'll meet halfway, we'll agree to disagree. He pays the whole cost himself. Are you with me this morning? See, this piece, there's a, there's a really good illustration that I heard of it. There's a guy called Don Richardson who was a, um, who was a, minister, uh, a missionary in Papua New Guinea working among the tribes out there. And he kept trying to find ways to communicate with people who were always at war with each other. Most of these people were headhunters. You know, that is, they took their enemies' heads and held them as trophies um, uh, and you know, <coughs> kept skulls in their houses as a way of demonstrating. And he said that, that when there was, there was a particular tribe, he said when there was a war between them, uh, you know, there was never any forgiveness, nothing. And he said that if you forgave, it was a sign of weakness. And, uh, and, and he thought, how do I communicate, you know, Jesus coming to earth? And, and then um, there was another thing. He found out that when he read the gospel story, they saw, they saw Judas as the hero because he'd successfully got one over on Jesus. He thought, oh, man, how do I do this? And then he came across this tradition that when there was a warring tribe and they were going to kill each other, two warring tribes, the chief of one of the tribes could take his eldest son, baby, and offer it to the other tribe as a permanent gift. Why would you do that? Why would you give away your firstborn son to your enemies? But this was what enabled Don to preach the gospel to these tribes and led to them all becoming Christians because they... They saw, you can read the books called Peace Child. They gave a peace child. And he saw it happen. One of, the, one of these tribes that were warring against each other, the, the, the leader realized what was going to happen, one of the tribes. He took his firstborn son, not more than a couple of weeks old, and in a ceremony presented that boy to the enemies. And they had a responsibility. They accepted him 
and they nurtured him as their own. And it was the beginning of a lasting peace, not just the lasting peace, where those two tribes who were at war with each other became one tribe. And Don just said, I saw the gospel, and I could preach the gospel from that. And lo and behold, it had fruit. You see, Jesus says this is how we're known as God's children. In Matthew 5, later on, it says, It's heard you said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus says, if you really are a child of God, you'll be like your dad. You know, I know because of my floppy ears that I'm like my dad. No, he's no longer with us. He's in heaven with Jesus, okay? And I know that there are things about me that's, I get them from him. And that is the same of a real disciple of Jesus. You'll see it in your DNA that works out in you. Jesus was the peacemaker. If we really are his disciples, we too will become like him. Now that has some massive influence on how we do reconciliation. Whether you live your life just doing political makeups, I'm going to be your friend, you know, let's just agree to disagree and let's get over it. Or are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you going to go the whole distance and cover the whole gap in one bound and say, they may be my enemies and I may be in the right, but I'm going first. How do I make peace? Move first. I'm going to say it again. You have reconciliation that needs to happen. Move first. Don't wait. Jesus moved first while we were still his enemies. Christ died for us. There's a lovely story in the Old Testament. Moses. It says about it in Psalm 106. It says, they forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his anger from destroying them. What did Moses do when God said, enough? Moses, get away from them. I'm going to kill them. They're a miserable bunch of toe rags. Moses threw himself down in front of the Lord and said, no, take my life out of the book of life. Send me to hell and let them go free. All the way through the Old Testament, this thing comes up again and again and again. You don't believe it? What does Paul say? Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I don't think you and I could ever understand the affliction and the persecution that Paul took from his brothers and sisters in the Jewish people. They hunted him down. They pledged 40 of them to fast until he was dead. 
They went after, e- after him in every city, hunting him down. What does he say? I could wish that I were cut off from Christ for their sake. Lord, don't punish them. Punish me. You see, God has no, hesitate to say the word answer, but to that kind of prayer. Because God loved Paul, and Paul knew that God would never cut him off from Christ. And Moses knew that God loved him, but he threw himself in the gap. How, many of, how often have you done that for your children? You've thrown yourself into the gap between them. How does this look on a world stage? So let's go back to the Middle East, and then I'm going to wrap up. This is a story from Brother Andrew's book. I think it's called um, Peace Force, but I can't remember. In 1990, after learning through a friend about a hostage that had been held for three years by Hezbollah and was very ill, he arranged to meet with Ayatollah Fadlada, the spiritual leader of Hezbollah. As they sipped coffee, Brother Andrew offered to take the place of the sick hostage. This man has suffered enough. Let him go back to his wife and children. I will take his place. How can you say that, said Fadlala. You don't even know him. This is the spirit of Jesus, Andrew answered. He died on the cross to let us go free. Now I'm ready myself to give up, to give myself up so that my friend can go free. This is what Christianity is all about. Fadlala's response was telling about his observation of Christianity in the Middle East. I've never heard about this kind of Christianity, he said. See, there's a reaction to this kind of behavior because actually we're not used to it. We're used to forgiving each other because we're nice in English. We think we should forgive each other to get on, but we don't actually engage with this kind of peacekeeping where you're prepared to die for the sake of someone who hates your guts where you're prepared to make the first move. We forgive, but also there's, a, there's this kind of thing that happens in our theology, our understanding, our faith. You see, how you believe God forgives you is how you will forgive others. And sometimes we betray by our lack of forgiveness to each other as to how actually we believe God has forgiven us. Somehow, subconsciously, I think many Christians think to themselves, well, God forgives me, but actually he's sitting there waiting for me to slip up again. He's waiting for me. He's actually, he hasn't really forgiven me. He's just holding these things on the side to bring them out because we know that's what we do with others. But God punished sin on the cross in Christ. He buried it in Christ. It's not possible for him to remember it again. Any more than it's possible for a man in a British court of law to be punished twice for the same sin. There's a reason why you are set free, why you've been united to Christ, why you have been brought back into the relationship with the Father. Because once for all, Christ died, the righteous for the ungodly, to bring us to God. It's done. It's finished. God can't bring up your past mistakes if he tried. They've already been judged. This is the nature of God's forgiveness. It's permanent. It's final. 
And so therefore, if you realize the truth of that, then you would probably be a lot more free in giving your own forgiveness to others, in paying the price. It's impossible for him to judge your sin or raise it up again. It's buried. He asks us to forgive in the same way. And he says that those who forgive their enemies are regarded, and it's linked to the same thing. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Jesus said, if you forgive your enemies, you will be sons of your Father in heaven. This week, I got grumpy with someone. I got very grumpy with someone because they did the same thing again and again and again. And um, I didn't have this kind of peacemaking in my heart. I just thought, enough. I've done, I'm done. And the Lord spoke to me in my reading in the morning. He said this. Psalm 106, it says, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. See, Moses had a slip-up towards the end of his life. He still did what God asked him to do. But the people drove him to absolute distraction, despair. And he stood before them and God had said, speak to the rock. They've been whinging and whinging and whinging. I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And Moses thought, oh, for goodness sake. This is English translation, okay, <laughs> of the Hebrew. You miserable. And he took his stick and smashed it on that rock. And the water flowed out. He spoke out of his anger and his frustration and his resentment and his bitterness. And God said to him, sorry Moses, no promised land for you. Now Moses gets into the promised land, it's okay. He talks with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration some 1,500 years later. <laughs> he got there in the end. But we need to be careful with our Anger. That's why Paul says elsewhere, don't let a bitter root grow up among you. Now, I'm going to stop there. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond, not, me, not really to me, but perhaps in your own heart and maybe even with each other. Blessed, Jesus says, are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are prepared to pay the whole cost of reconciliation themselves. By the way, I've looked up that word whole, it means all, okay? The whole cost. In the differences that you have with each other and with those who are outside and maybe even your families, are you prepared to pay the whole cost and bear it all? Because you have resources that others may not have. You have Christ. I think you do anyway. If Christ is in your heart, you have resources that non-Christians don't have. We have resources when it comes to f forgiving people that others just don't have. So my challenge to you this morning is, is there someone that you need to set yourself right with? Is there someone that you need to say sorry to or make the first steps or move towards.
And um, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'm sure I'll get dragged off if I'm not. I just think we should have a time. I'm going to ask the Lord to come, and then I would like you to move. Okay? I'm going to give you two things to think about, just so it's not embarrassing. First of all, if there's anyone in this room that you need to sort stuff out with, I'm not saying you need to go to them and saying, you did this, that's not peacemaking. <laughs> it's going to them and making the first move and saying, I'm sorry. Or is there someone in this room that you just need to say, and this is the get out clause, okay? I really appreciate you. Not just that you want to be nice to, but someone who you know has really blessed you and you want to encourage them, you want to appreciate them. So there are two things there. You don't have to move, but I'm going to ask Pete to come up and tinkle away on the piano. I'm going to pray. And then just move around among each other. Okay? If there's stuff you need to sort out, sort it out. Because we can't carry it into heaven with us any more than Moses could carry his anger into the promised land. Okay? Is there someone you just need to get up to and just say thank you so much you've really helped me and I never really told you I just want to encourage you this morning that you've made a massive difference in my life might be a little thing okay Heavenly Father I'm not here to make people squirm like we said that we wanted to be your disciples no one made peace like you have, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray especially that where there's an uneasy truce between people, that it would change today. That we would dig the roots out and that the land would be fruitful again for our relationships. Father, if there are people, I guess that there will be struggles with people who are not in this room. Lord, would you give us courage to set things right that are wrong? Not by getting justice for ourselves, but by giving mercy to someone else. Spirit of the living God, thank you for Jesus. Let his ministry be evident among us from this day forward in the area of dealing with resentment and bitterness. all stand together and then remember this is about being grateful for those around you keeping a short account with those who you want to say sorry to